At the Boston Book Festival, we believe in the power of words to stimulate, agitate, unite, delight, and inspire. In this session, authors Peniel Joseph, Jason Sokol, and Lawrence Ralph discuss racial justice and social activism in an age of Black Lives Matter with host Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm at WGBH 89.7. That's God bless Harvard for those of you having a hard time remembering <laughs> the difference between the two NPR stations. So just like to make it clear. Um, You'll notice that there is one missing here, and that's Peniel Joseph. I'm sorry he can't be with us. Um, he just had a baby not long ago. Well, his uh, significant other had a baby, and he has child care responsibilities. And you know, ladies, I'm not mad at that. I'm not mad <laughs> that he had to stay home with the baby. Hey, hey. So, <laughs> so there you go. But uh, do not feel... Uh, in any way deprived because we have uh, two wonderful presenters here and with all of you in attendance we should have a great interactive conversation so I'm going to ask them a few questions and then there will be time for questions for all of you uh, toward the end of this this uh, this session is racial justice and community activism activism in the age of black lives matter as just sort of an organizing principle uh, in terms of title for our conversation. We have two great presenters, as I said, with uh, pretty new books. Uh, first, over here, is Lawrence Ralph. Uh, he's the John L. Loeb Associate Professor in the Social Sciences in the Departments of Anthropology and African and African American Studies at Harvard University. And his book is Renegade Dreams, Living Through Injury in Gangland, Chicago. All right, and also over here, Jason Sokol. He is an associate professor of history at the University of New Hampshire. His research focuses on 20th century American politics, race, and civil rights. And his newest book is All Eyes Are Upon Us. And there is a second part of that, <laughs> Race and Politics from Boston to Brooklyn. I like the whole title, just so that we're all on the same page. So as we can, you can see, we have a lot of rich conversation to have. Um, when I am asked to do these conversations, and I have two books, two authors, two very different perspectives and circumstances, even though we have the umbrella title of racial justice and community activism, I try to figure out, well, what are the common elements in the discussion? And so for me, I would say, um, this is my theme, uh, reputation and reality. As we say in the black church, because you have to repeat because you didn't hear me, reputation <laughs> and reality. Um, that is where I I put the two books, and that's because what you will hear from their conversations is that uh, what they chose to write about uh, had a certain reputation, but the reality, in fact, may be quite different, right? Right. All right, so Jason, let's start with you uh, <laughs> uh, and talk about your book, All Eyes Are Upon Us, Race and Politics from Boston to Brooklyn, and so that you can play out what I just said, explain uh, what your book is about. Uh, well, going Briefly. well, first, <laughs> first, thank you, Kelly and Lawrence. I'm happy to be with you guys and everyone. Um, well, if I start like that, it feels like I'm in a political debate or something. I should <laughs> answer the question. Um, reputation and reality. Well, I wrote a book about race in the Northeast. And when I was reading through all these other books about race in the North, you know, some of the books, I, I think, especially the, the popular books, still painted the North as a land of liberty or as a place of freedom. Um, of course, there are many scholarly studies that 
paint it, portray it the total opposite as a place of unremitting segregation and racism uh, and racial violence. But I think in some corners, the North still has a reputation as, as a, um, uh, a progressive place, a culturally enlightened place, the home of political liberalism and, and progress. And I think that remains strong in the popular mind, um, even though many of us know, especially those of us who live in the Boston area, know the bloody history of race, um, you know, Boston busing crisis, but not just, but not only that, also the history of school segregation and housing segregation. So um, my book actually tried to tell the two stories at once, um, the story about the North as a place where certain things were possible for African-Americans. For instance, they could vote, which I thought was important, and yet also as a place that had all sorts of segregation and racism and violence. So try to tell the two together. And uh, just a bit of detail that will be helpful. When you uh, write about the North in your book, you're not talking about New Jersey, Philadelphia, and Rhode Island. You concentrated on Massachusetts, New York, and uh, Connecticut. So just so we're all clear about where your uh, case studies came from, your examples came from, that was uh, um, where you stopped. So uh, well, let's go over here to Ralph Lawrence, Lawrence Ralph, rather, and um, get, a, get an understanding of what your reputation versus reality scenario is. Um, you, in fact, embedded yourself in a community in Chicago known by reputation for gang warfare and got there and discovered much more. So a brief explanation of what your book is about. Right. So I guess the story of that, it starts uh, kind of even before I moved into the community. So I was doing um, a volunteer work while I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago in violence prevention programming. And I came across um, uh, older, usually gentlemen who were working on the gang problem, trying to stop, um, you know, usually young people from using guns, committing crimes, um, enacting violence. Uh, these older men were usually around in their 60s to 70s, and they still claimed gang affiliation. They still claimed to be gang members. And so... That's the first thing that struck me in terms of reputation. Like, this is not what I know of gang members, a 60-year-old person, 70-year-old person. But I came to find out that what they really meant, it was important for them to claim the gang because they were trying to make an argument that the gang is not inherently violent, it's not inherently criminal, that there's a longer history of gang affiliation and that the gang doesn't have to be this way. It was... It can be a productive um, contributor to the community. And so that was the first um, claim that really stuck with me. And that's the first thing I tried to explore uh, within my book. So, again, a little bit more detail. You were coming back and forth from the University of Chicago at one point and then decided it was important for you to actually live there. Talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that also um, struck me when I was first trying to conduct a research project was the fact that the idea of a researcher, the idea of an anthropologist in the community was not a foreign one. People were very familiar with researchers and they had a, a, 
a kind of fraught relationship with the community because the idea was that people always come here, people always try to um, test their hypotheses and theories on our community, and they don't really have a, a, a concern for what happens afterwards. And so uh, I had to wrestle with that um, because on the one hand, the people that I was working with in violence prevention they're the ones that encouraged me to work in Chicago and to look at these problems here because it needed to be done. But when I started to engineer a research project, there was a lot of backlash against the notion of research. And what I found was that they weren't really um, objecting to research itself. They were objecting to research that doesn't take in the perspectives of community members, that doesn't account for the ways that they are already dealing with these problems on an everyday basis, uh, the ways that they are trying to solve the problems uh, that inflict their community themselves. And, you know, they're, they're, happily, they're happy to partner with people who can take that as a premise and build from the knowledge that they already have. But when people, you know, try to um, say like, oh, this thing worked in New York, so let's try this gang prevention program in Chicago, uh, they really resent that because that doesn't take into account what people are already doing in the community to solve their own problems. So, Jason, let's talk about um, how the reputation of the North came to be uh, such that this was the refuge, the place in the country that was leading in terms of um, good race relations. Um, and I have to say, in your book, you describe this Springfield plan. I bet you a lot of you people out here never heard of this either in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I really want you to talk about it because I was like, what the heck? I never heard of this. Um, and I can see how if you build upon something like the Springfield plan that he's about to describe, and you get to the point where, of course, it would seem as though everything above the Mason-Dixon line has got to be Nirvana. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that idea goes back, at least back to the abolitionists. You know, the, the South did indeed have, you know, the South had slavery much longer than the North had it. Of course, the North also had slavery, but it held on in the South and it um, was central to the, obviously central to the economy there. And then, the, you know, abolitionists were Northerners and me, the, the North me, fought on that side of the Civil War. So that's where it began, I think. Let me pause you and say... Did you hear him? Slavery was in New York. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm saying that for real yeah. because they had a huge historical sure. um, exhibit in New York not long ago, um, within the last 10 years, sold out because people could not believe the detail amount about slavery in sure. New York. So continue. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and Medford too, yeah. to, you know, yeah. Ten Hills Farm. Um, so, so I think uh, because the North had abolitionists, because the North, you know, fought a war to defeat slavery and uh, the radical... Republicans were Northerners. I, you know, I think it, 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 it got this reputation. Um, that reputation, you know, carried through the, through the Jim Crow years, the early years of the 20th century. Um, and then, you know, the first, uh, the first Great Migration, the second Great Migration, African Americans fled the South because they thought, and they went, you know, many of them went to Chicago. I, I think the highest percentage went to Chicago. So they thought there was something in the North for them. Um, and then, so my book starts in 1939. Uh, it starts at the World's Fair, where 1939 you have Hitler marching across Europe, and you have totalitarianism, uh, another version of totalitarianism still in the South. I think that the leaders of the North thought of themselves 
as still the last best hope for freedom and democracy in the world at this moment. So starting during World War II and um, during World War II years, I think many northern leaders took seriously um, the idea that, that their cities could be places of, of freedom in, in such a world. And the, um, the leaders of Springfield, Massachusetts devised a plan where they were going to abolish racial prejudice from their fair city once and for all. Um, and that was, um, you know, through the World War II years. And it was called the Springfield Plan. And they instituted what we would see today as a sort of multi, uh, uh, curriculum of multiculturalism in the, in the schools. They would try to teach tolerance to kids. And, you know, the idea was that if you teach tolerance to kids at a young age, you may then be able to produce a generation that's free of prejudice and, and, and free of hatred. Of course, um, it didn't work. <laughs> um, and, you know, part of the reason is because there was something about the plan that was very much uh, you, somewhat unique to World War II time America. Uh, well, not unique, but um, there were a lot of similar plans happening in World War II years that had similar goals. And the goal was to focus on white minds. And if you could just change the minds of white people, you could resolve racial problems. But, and the problem was that, uh, you know, issues of racial inequality went much deeper than that. These were the same years of the second great migration. So African-Americans were indeed coming to Springfield and they were being basically um, corralled into certain neighborhoods and certain schools. So just as Springfield was trying to pioneer a program to get rid of prejudice, it was also um, creating and cementing systems of segregation in schools and neighborhoods at the same time. I thought it was wild. I, I never <laughs> heard of it. Had, had, any, had any of you ever heard of that? Me either. I, it's just really, you have to read the book to see the, the quite detailed manner in which they went about this. I hadn't I heard just, of it, and I'm from Springfield. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there you go. That, that's, that's all you can say. Uh, I mean, I think in this conversation, time periods make a lot of difference. So you're talking about World War II, and we know that in this country, post-World War II, when the black veterans came back uh, from the war, they weren't taking this anymore. And so they started talking about, you know, uh, how can we change race relations and certainly uh, the segregated life. And that's, you know, some of the foundation of the civil rights movement. Uh, so when we talk about where Lawrence was going in his time period, it's 2007 to 2010, you were embedded. I note that that was part of the recession as well. So you had like three whammies going on while you were uh, embedded in that community trying to figure out you know, all of the, the pieces of it. Um, I want you to put your work into the framework of ethnographic research, because I think it's important to know he's not reporting in the way that you would think about it, but you're doing this kind of ethnographic look at a community that you have given a pseudonym to called Eastwood. So if you'd speak about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's actually a lot of resonances between the stories that Jason's telling and the kind of context for my book. Um, uh, and Jason's right in saying that, you know, during the second uh, uh, Great Migration, uh, most of the African-Americans coming from places like Mississippi uh, and Louisiana are coming to Chicago. 
And so they're inhabiting places like Eastwood. Let me pause you. I, I interrupt a lot. Sorry. Okay. Um, if you have not read Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sun, which did, does a great amount of detail about this migration. I happen to be the daughter of a man from Mississippi who's all his people went to Chicago. She right. tracks where black people went in some degree so that we know that the folks from Louisiana went to California. That's why I can get good gumbo there still <laughs> correctly done. Um, and then a lot of the folks from Florida went up to New York. So just to keep going. All right. right. So <laughs> they're coming to places like Chicago. Um, they're redlined into certain neighborhoods. Um, young uh, black people are trying to take advantage of the, the new resources. They're trying to navigate their environment. They're, reaching, they're facing a lot of resistance from white gangs that already exist. And so they, this is the birth of the gang um, as we know it, the African-American gang, that is. So the gang that I conduct research um, with started in the early 1950s. And so this is how you have this long history, and this is how you have, you know, 70-year-old gang members today. Um, and really, that was the kind of highlight or the heyday of migration into the neighborhood um, when it comes to um, the kind of the riots of the 60s and the 70s and the, um, you know, the early recessions in the, the 1980s and the phenomenon of white flight where the kind of European immigrants who had lived in these Chicago neighborhoods are moving out to the suburbs you really get a lot of um, people leaving the neighborhood and there really hasn't been a significant migration of people or jobs into the neighborhood since World War II. And so this is the context of uh, the neighborhood today uh, and, the, and the gangs that inhabit the neighborhood today. When we talk about uh, the context of ethnographic research, there was an early wave of research um, well, basically throughout this, this history. Um, but when the white flight happened, people, especially scholars, started to view these communities as socially isolated, kind of bereft of any investment from government, from the government. So they kind of lack a kind of infrastructure for schools. Um, they lack a kind of infrastructure for building homes. Um, they lack, you know, grocery stores, things that would make a kind of viable community, a sustainable community. Um, and so a lot of the research is talking about these communities in terms of lack, you know, what these people lack, what they don't have. And when I'm coming to it in 2007, especially in the, the context of the recession, on the one hand, you know, I see a lot of that lack. It's obvious but I also see other things that are curious. I see kind of um, government, uh, local government, kind of making plans for redevelopment, trying to figure out ways that they can gentrify the community. Um, uh, I see kind of a police department kind of building up uh, a department next adjacent to the community so they can monitor and police it and surveil it. And I see, most importantly for me, uh, a lot of people working on their problems um, tr and, and, you, and using each other 
as community resources, often in dialogue with the new initiatives that are taking place at the very moment. So, uh, you know, they know that their, their community is um, slated for redevelopment, and they know that this is likely going to kick a lot of residents out of the community. So there's a lot of activism, there's a lot of work to say that, no, our community is not just dilapidated, right? There's actually people who live there. There's actually a lot of work being done to keep people in their homes. And so some of the things that I confronted were actually gang members rallying around wider community problems and trying to solve them. And then I, I realized that one can't look at the gang problem separate from the community problem because the ties of family are so intertwined. It's like Nobody is just a gang member. They're also somebody's son or daughter or nephew or uncle. And so these problems affect all community members. And so I started to look at the ways people really, gang members included, are rallying around each other to try to solve these wider community problems. So, Jason, when I'm reading your book, I was struck by the whole concept of exceptionalism, um, black exceptionalism coming to the fore in that the way that the North were I'm doing my generalization here, rationalize is sort of um, flip side of viewpoint about race relations is to pick out a few people. You did the case studies. Jackie Robinson is one. Ed Brooks is another. And say, look, we're we are supporting. We were right there with them. We voted for Ed. We we wanted um, Jackie Robinson to break the color barrier. But yet there was all this other stuff going on that just did not speak to a complete understanding of what the stress was. I wish you'd talk about uh, Jackie Robinson in particular, because I thought his case was interesting with regard to being on the field as a celebrity and then in his real life trying to live. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, the story of Jackie Robinson trying to buy a home was fascinating and shocking to me. Um, We all know the story of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier and it, It's significant, you know, very significant that he did that. This was 1947 when he broke the color barrier almost 10 years before anyone had ever heard of Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King. So, I mean, Jackie Robinson was a true pioneer. Um, And it was incredible to see how many white people in Brooklyn eventually embraced him once he proved that he could help them win ball games, uh, and, and, and then they did, though. They did pretty, pretty fully embrace him after that point, um, but he always had trouble finding a place to live. I mean, um, he, you know, he lived in this apartment in Brooklyn. Uh, he rented in an apartment, and the landlady had, you know, she had to counter white homeowners associations in order to buy her home. Um, I know Chicago has a rich history of this, too, of, uh, of you know, violence and resistance of African-Americans trying to move into certain neighborhoods. Well, the Robinsons, and um, they had a home in St. Albans area of Queens. In the early 1950s, they, well, they, they got in their minds what many Americans had in their minds, the suburban dream. And they wanted a home in the suburbs with a yard. Um, and they, lo- they started looking at homes in Westchester County, New York, and Fairfield County, Connecticut. And Rachel Robinson recounted how excited she got when the New York Times would be delivered every Sunday morning. And she could look through the real estate section and try to find that home of her dreams. 
And then reality intervened. And she would call about a home and give her name, and she'd be told it was off the market. Um, They would put an offer in on a home. They did put an offer in on a home, and then they were told that the price would be raised by $5,000. And they raised their price by $5,000, and then there was a period of silence, and that home was removed from the market. I mean, they they got the runaround everywhere they tried. And this was... You know, what always struck me, this was Jackie Robinson. This was not, you know, imagine the toil and sweat that an anonymous African-American would have faced, let alone the great hero that, of that point, a guy who had won the Most Valuable Player Award already. Um, and, you know, they finally did find a home in North Stamford, Connecticut, and that was, ac- that was after the, the white residents of North Stamford were... It wasn't that they desperately wanted the Robinsons to move. It was, again, this thing about reputation, and this is about White's reputation. They were worried that they would get a reputation as racists. And that's what motivated the white citizens of Stanford, I think, to to do something proactive to try to welcome the Robinsons to their community. And um, it was actually... um, Richard Simon, who was the publisher of Simon and & Schuster, and his wife, Andrea Simon, owned a country home in Stamford, and they brought the Robinsons to their home for a meeting and had some local ministers there and some realtors, and they all agreed that goodwill would prevail in Stamford, and they showed uh, the Robinsons a home, and they, they indeed bought one. And Rachel Robinson said after she was able to buy a home in North Stamford, that was when she felt most like an American. That was when she felt that she could finally, was finally overcoming all of the, you know, burdens and handicaps that were um, dealt to her. And so I found that, that story enormously powerful. And yes, I, I felt that in a sense, the trouble that they had buying a home uh, was, was more important in the long run than the fact that Millions of, of white people might vote for Jackie Robinson just because he could help to win ball games. So back to that whole the theme of uh, reputation versus reality, which is this is an extre- a good example of that. Um, I, I wondered if this was a situation where the symbolism of being in the region of the country that's supposed to be forward thinking with race obviously was very important in this instance, but the structural inequality that really denied folks, whether they be Jackie Robinson or anybody else, an equal opportunity was just seemed to be not part of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, um, when it was about Robinson or anyone else. I, I mean, I, um, I talk a lot in my book about the concept of the Northern mystique, the idea that Northerners had, mostly white Northerners, uh, but some African-Americans also had the idea that, that their states were capable of, of something different than what a place like Alabama was capable of or something. And, um, for instance, when, when Ed Brooke, I, I don't know if you're going to get to Ed Brooke hmm. later. You can mention it now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when Ed Brooke ran for Senate in 1966 in Massachusetts, um, you know, he, he even played into this notion that we shouldn't think about structural inequality. He didn't want people going to the voting booth thinking about things like racism and segregation. He said, when you go to the voting booth, you shouldn't think about race. You know, you should disregard my racial identity. Um, That's because he knew that there were battles brewing in Boston 
over open housing uh, and over school segregation. And there were riots flaring in cities across the country in 1966, 1967. And he didn't want and he knew that in a state that was 97 percent white, you know, he didn't want the focus on that uh, to be on that for an election. Um, So I think when it came to the level of electoral politics, I think even African-Americans who tried to win in the north um, could find it to their advantage that this ability to hide and to not talk about things like structural inequality. And just a footnote on that, of course, when Ed Brooke ran and at that point he had expressed support for desegregation busing uh, and desegregation in schools, he was not reelected. Right. So, <laughs> um, I wanted to you to talk about uh, the second half of your title. So this is Renegade dreams, living through injury in gangland Chicago. And what we haven't talked about with your book is that you also, one of the, one of the, some of the people that you talked to were crippled gang members. And so we talk about physical injury, but your book is really about the larger injury. So speak to us about the crippled uh, footprint collective and also what you mean by living through injury as in a, in a, in a total way in gangland, um, Chicago. Yeah, I would say that, um, one of the things that struck me most when I was doing research is that I, I, this is at the time where I had moved into the neighborhood. I had kind of developed relationships with people. I had even kind of figured out a routine, especially when you do ethnographic, uh, research, a lot of it is, uh, participant observation, you know, just, you know, spending time with people, getting to know them, getting to know them in the context of the work they do, um, even before you do interviews sometimes, because you want people to be comfortable with you and you want uh, to kind of have a real substantial relationship so you can get an in-depth notion of uh, what they do and how it relates to the questions you're asking. So even as I'm developing this, um, one of the things that strikes me most is that I encounter uh, young people, mostly young men in wheelchairs, you know, and I see, you know, a couple and then I see more and more and nobody is kind of talking about the fact that this young person is disabled or that they're in a wheelchair. They're talking about everything else except for that. And, you know, I start to kind of inquire more about that. And most of these young men have been paralyzed as a result of gun violence, right? Um, and so I began to wonder what what was like like from their perspective? What was the community like? How did they view the gang and their family kind of before and after they become uh, disabled? And, and really the out of that is how I kind of developed a wider concept of injury. It was really out of that kind of idea, that curiousness about physical injury. So um, as part of my research, I followed a group of paralyzed ex-gang members, um, what I call the Crippled Footprint Collective, and they went around to different schools and churches and community programs talking about what life was like um, in a wheelchair, how it was like living in a wheelchair. And what interested me about this group was that 
on the one hand, the, the idea of a reformed gang member was a common thing, right? Especially in a community like this in an age of mass incarceration. Uh, this community had uh, uh, basically 57% of the community had some involvement with the criminal justice system. And when you talk about African-American men, that shot up to about 70% of the community. So it was common for people to, you know, come out of prison, uh, kind of have a new orientation about their life and try to talk to people about that. And usually that fell on deaf ears, particularly when you're talking to active gang members, right? But something about this group and their tactics were different. So I wanted to try to understand that, right? Part of it was that, their strategy was to just talk about the kind of medical reality of being in a wheelchair. They would talk about, you know, how they have to lift themselves off of their wheelchair, you know, every couple hours so they don't, you know, get sores and sores that can lead to um, blood clots, which could ultimately kill them. They would talk about how they have to regulate the times of days when they go to the bathroom because they don't want the embarrassment of having their catheter spill over or something like that. And they would talk about um, just the kind of realities of how their lives have changed and how people have treated them and the kind of uh, emotional abandonment that they felt. And I thought that, you know, for me, this was a kind of interesting way to not only get at the kind of realities of the gang, but get at this really hard thing to do, particularly when you're talking about gang research, uh, to talk about the difference between the kind of symbolic reality of it and the kind of material reality. Because when you talk about somebody who has sacrificed themselves on behalf of a gang, there's often this kind of, you know, large in the life personality that this person can develop, kind of like a, a martyr, somebody mm -hmm. like that. They, you know, mm -hmm. people... They die all the time, young people. They're memorialized in, in certain ways. Um, they're on RIP t-shirts. Their names are graffitied on the wall. And oftentimes, this is kind of used to propel a cycle of gang violence. But the, the young men that I encountered were, were, they were still alive. And they were talking about how their lives were affected and sometimes um, the people in their gang wanted to retaliate on behalf of them, and they were saying, no, I don't want that. And so I, you know, I had to confront the fact, as do gang members, what does it mean when you've built somebody up to be a martyr, and they're saying, don't do that, don't you know, perpetuate that cycle of violence anymore. And so you know, that became a focal point of my research. And of course, I'm struck by when we think that when you hear the word gang, and certainly if you hear the, think about Chicago gangs that were supposed to be the baddest and the toughest, these are not the people you hear about. Right. You don't hear about them. You hear about all the guys that are still walking around you know, with the AK-47s or whatever they have, but you don't hear about these people at all and that reality of what's going on. Now, to the larger reputation versus reality in your book, I was really, you know, um, just taken when you were having um, many conversations and realized that your perception of what their dreams may be was completely different from what their perception was. And also about their ability to just survive and thrive, hence renegade dreams. So talk about that, if you would. Yeah, I mean, I think that 
as you know, uh, somebody who at the time when I started the research project, I was a kind of graduate student um, at a prestigious university, and I came to kind of study a social problem, right? And I had all these kind of aspirations for uh, not only what my life would be, but also just in general, just thinking about what the idea of aspirations meant and what it, what dreaming meant. And I was talking to and meeting young people on an everyday basis where they spent the majority of their time or a lot of their time just figuring out how they're going to walk to school, right? And this could become a crisis event because, you know, there was a shooting the night before, there was heated tensions between two rival gangs, and there was no way to walk to school without being confronted by the other gang. Or So they were thinking about what time to wake up, you know, what bus to take out of the way so that they can come back in the other direction. And they were spending all of these times thinking about mundane things, it was seemingly mundane things to me, but things that meant the world to them. And everybody uh, that I came across was interested in their own many projects. I mean, at the time, I was trying to complete a dissertation, so I was thinking about, you know, what it means to construct a project, but everybody had projects, like the Cripple Footprint Collective. They had their own project of going to schools and talking about their injury. They spent countless hours thinking about the best way to craft their message. They, They spent, you know, they looked at each other's videos um, they they shadowed each other when they made public presentations. They talked about trying to elicit empathy from the crowd, but also trying to get the kind of medical knowledge right about what living with a disability meant. Um, I encountered uh, people who, again, were really interested in this problem of uh, redevelopment and trying to make sure that they could stay in their homes. Uh, the local government had put together what they called an acquisition list, of the houses that could be acquired um, and taken from people. And because these houses were supposedly dilapidated, well, a group of these residents went around taking pictures of the houses to show uh, in a city court, city hall hearing that these houses weren't in fact dilapidated, that there was nothing wrong with them. But they spent hours doing this, strategizing about who was going to take the pictures when, what outside groups to involve, what nonprofit groups to involve, And, you know, when we think about aspirations and when we think about dreaming uh, from a normative middle class perspective, uh, we we often think about uh, things like, you know, buying a house, attending college, getting a job. But these people were just thinking about staying in their neighborhood or staying alive. And so I, I began to kind of rethink what what dreaming meant in this context it was a, a real struggle. It was a it was an act of defiance. And so um, when I when I really thought about the title for my book, I, I came up with this idea of renegade dreams, which was a kind of dreaming through injury, using your injury as a resource to think about where you want to go in life. So we're coming up on the time for you all to ask questions, but I wanted to. Um bring us crashing forward, if, if, if I may, and ask, um, what does it mean for the North to have the symbolism of itself as it, as it continues to have in, those, in this sort of fraught tension between the reality and, and the reputation today? 
um, when we talk about race relations, and it seems to me, maybe some of you agree with me, that some of the articulation of racist stuff is harder, um, nastier, maybe it's just the web that makes it more accessible, but I don't know. It seems really horrific at this point, and um, I'm not saying there's a, there's a region in, in the country, well, I'm from Memphis, and we used to call this up south anyway, so, you know, uh, so, so what do you think, based on your research? Um, a lot of my book is about how white northerners use the idea of the north and the northern mystique, use that idea in a, so that they could obscure continuing patterns of segregation and racism um, and racial violence. I think today uh, white northerners can still use ideas and notions about the north um, as a way to, to claim um, that it's better. But I, I think there's something complicated and not all that simplistic about that, where at certain times, Northerners' idea that the North is progressive can actually help them to propel themselves forward. If you look, for instance, at electoral politics, you'll see Northerners much more willing to embrace the idea of racial democracy or interracial democracy. Um, The percentage of white Northerners who voted for Obama, for instance, versus the percentage of white Southerners it's, it's no contest. And yet, uh, and yet, Eric Garner was killed in Staten Island, in New York City, right? The capital of, of cosmopolitanism. Uh, most of the, uh, a lot of the killings that we're seeing are in these cities of the Great Migration, I think, nowadays. Um, so I would say that the North and the nation still has these two sides to our racial identity or our racial history, when I finished my book, I was optimistic. I was writing in the wake of Obama's re-election and Deval Patrick's re-election. Uh, now I would have to say uh, I have much less reason to be optimistic, optimistic and hopeful, but I would still emphasize the reality of both of the traditions. Okay. Now, over to you, Lawrence. I'm struck by a couple of things. First of all, again, you're, you used a pseudonym for the for the part of Chicago that in which you embedded yourself. But I remember uh, reading Barack Obama's Dreams of My Father about his community activism work. And one particular point, he has worked really hard with the community group to get like a government official to come speak, and the government official never shows up. And he is crushed. And the other people, the, the local guy is like, what's wrong with you? Like, this stuff happens all the time. <laughs> you know? And he couldn't get over that sort of acceptance and reg- not quite acceptance, but resignation to that reality. But they kept pushing. But, you know, there was that. Then we have William Julius Wilson. Many of you know him, your colleague at, well, I guess he's emer- is he emeritus now at Harvard, um, who did seminal work in Chicago, um, looking in some of these communities. And so my question to you is, knowing what you know, um, taking all of that other stuff in, uh, into context, if you can, if you don't, just dismiss it. How do, you, how do you look at what's happening in Chicago right now in terms of the massive amounts of violence with primarily young men being killed? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of it has to do with, um, actually, what Jason's talking about, too. I mean, I think that 
We're talking about structural issues that have never been addressed in particular communities, right? And so uh, just to give a little background, uh, the community already kind of talked about the crime rates, but let's talk about the education rate. Uh, In this community, there's a 70% um, high school dropout rate, right? And so every young person that I talked to to in the community, they didn't say, um, you know, forget school. School's not, you know, for me. I'm going to be in the gang. They actually said, uh, you know what, I got. I want to go to school. I got in a little bit of trouble. Uh, I was afraid to go to school because um, I thought I was going to get arrested for violating probation. And then after a while, I got a job and, you know, now I'm working. Or they say, uh, I was going to school. Uh, my uncle got shot. Now I'm really the caretaker for him, and I'm going to try to go to night school in a couple years once he gets better. Or they have these stories like this in which um, somehow they believe that it's their fault that they're not in school. But by the time it's a 70% dropout rate, it's clearly like not an individual's problem. Uh, But everybody experiences it as an individual's problem, right? And so uh, the question is, like, what kind of resources aren't in the community mm. that uh, that lead to a kind of phenomenon like this, that snowball into something like this? So I think those are the kind of larger issues that I try to address in the book. And those are kind of the legacies um, of uh, generational legacies of people like uh, Bill Wilson when he was talking about these kind of infrastructures um, in the oh, you call him Bill? Uh, <laughs> I just was like, who's he talking about? <laughs> William Julius Wilson. Thank you sorry, very much. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Bill. <laughs> yeah. <Sorry. laughs> yeah, this is what William yeah, Julius yeah, Wilson yeah. is okay, talking right, about okay. now. So <laughs> what I'm talking about in multiple ways is the kind of the the extension of these kind of problems. Like myself, I, I feel like I'm a, another generation of res, uh, ethnographer in this community, so I have to contend with the fact that uh, there's been researchers there before, mm-hmm. and so what does it mean for me to be there now? Um, but we also have to contend with the fact that this infrastructure has been getting worse and worse, and on top of that, we've added to a new kind of investment in policing and surveillance and mass incarceration that has not helped the situation, right? All right, questions from the audience. There's a woman right here in the middle. Oh, yes, yes, of course. I'm a teacher in the Boston Public Schools, and um, I've been thinking about this question of race for as long as I've been teaching, which is almost 10 years. Um, And I see lots of money poured into programs to reform minority children, but I often think of myself as part of the problem because I don't know what to do to really give the kind of education to these families that, number one, do I even know if they want the kind of education I can offer? And I did, like, social justice work with my students. But what I want to know is, you know, what, for me as a white person, what can I do to remediate myself to truly make a difference and not just propagate forward 
an agenda that's clearly not solving a lot of things and maybe making life worse for people because it's a problem I struggle with every day. So a lot about me, but I really wanted to ask that publicly. I actually think this goes to your theory of the, the mystique, uh, like northern mystique. I think uh, what, what Jason's talking about in terms of the kind of northern mystique, this kind of idea that um, it's kind of dear about progressiveness, uh, but I think it also can be individualized. And we often think of ourselves um, as uh, good natured people, good-hearted people, and wanting to help uh, and, and kind of providing an outlet for that help or providing help. And then when people reject that or they don't understand it or they don't, um, or it actually doesn't help their everyday reality, we think of it as a problem with them. And I think that that's part of the mythology of it, or the mythology of progressivism, I would say. Uh, and I would say that there, there are other kind of issues that we can look at that would actually help um, solve the problems, but we don't look towards those issues. Uh, one of which is, I, I guess in my case, would be to um, just looking at those kids as resources are looking at them as experts of their own reality hmm. and, and them having the knowledge, um, but maybe it's not channeled in the right way or maybe it's not channeled in a way that's, um, you know, producing the results that we want to see. But we often look at them as obviously they don't know what they're doing or else they would perform a certain way on this hmm. test. Or obviously... They would get good grades if they were intelligent, or obviously um, they would behave in a certain way if they had good parents at home or something like that, where those, th those questions aren't obvious, you know? And so, uh, but the answers don't always lie with our forms of expertise. Sometimes it lies with their forms of expertise. Dismiss the reputation and get to their reality. Right. That's right. Did you want to address that? I mean, I, I don't have a, a whole lot to add. I, I mean, I think someone who has devoted their life to teaching public school is making the right sort of choice for themselves, I would say, someone who wants to, to help. Um, it's hard to know that, um, you know, one of us, well, it, it's a pessimistic view, but one of us can only do so much. I mean, we can apply pressure on our politicians. We can try to get do voter drives uh, as best we can. We can press politicians to answer the questions we want them to answer. I would say all that's really important. Um, and I, I really like what, what Lawrence said in terms of um, looking to the students themselves. But, it, it, you know, it's a hard one to answer. Okay. Mike, I know you're sitting right next, and then I'm going to go to the back. Yeah. Great. Thank you both for your, your research and for sharing your work with us. Um, I found the Springfield Plan fascinating. Uh, as I heard about it, uh, because it's public policy that, uh, that stands for acceptance, yet the reality was mere tolerance and, you know, redlining folks and putting them in their boxes and in their proper places. Did you find other places in the North where that was the case, where on the books there was public policy for acceptance for folks of color, yet the reality was totally different? Mm. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that if you look at the law and the law books, a lot of these northeastern states 
had progressive laws in place in the 1940s. I mean, fair employment practices, committees, things like that. Um, but they wouldn't always be enforced. I mean, so, you know, um, Ed Brooke fought a lot for open housing, but the Housing Act of 1968 only did so much. And, we're st you know, the battle over that law is still unfolding. There are many places that haven't built the affordable housing that they need to build. So, I mean, uh, northern states and cities were very good at passing progressive laws, and I think not so great at enforcing those laws. Another great example, the Racial Imbalance Act of 1965 here in Massachusetts, where every city was supposed to integrate its schools. What did the Boston School Committee say after 1965? The, yeah. the total opposite. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so segregation increased with each passing month after the passage of, of the Racial Imbalance Act. So, so I think... Um, so I think you have your finger on, on, on exactly the right thing in terms of this gap in the North, if that answers your, your question. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh, uh, hello. Hi. Uh, I recently read a book um, by Jill Levy called Ghetto Side, which um, decouples sort of the idea of gang violence uh, away from, well, gangs and more towards the idea that uh, broken windows policing doesn't work and when murders do occur in the African-American community, the rate of them actually being solved is quite dismal. Uh, do you accept the validity of that argument? And if so, have you seen examples of it in your real-life research? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably true for most cases. I think Chicago, I would say... Chicago and L.A. really are outliers when we think about gangs, um, particularly because of the long history and particularly because of, again, it follows migration patterns. So these are where a lot of um, people of color moved during the Second Great Migration and where, where gangs were formed. Um, so I don't, uh, in the context of my research, one really can't tease out um, a kind of a gang-related uh, crime from non-gang-related crime oftentimes, particularly because the gang boundaries, uh, because the geography of Chicago is so heavily mapped onto gang affiliation. So what I mean is that if you're a student, if you're one of the 30%, right, that are in high school, in this community, and um, say you're walking to high school, right? If you get stopped by a police officer or a rival gang member and they ask you what, what neighborhood you're from, you might as well be saying that, claiming a gang affiliation, right? So people don't really tease out the distinctions. And so if a crime is committed, uh, oftentimes it's assumed to be gang-related just because of the geography of Chicago. There's been a couple big stories actually about the um, misunderstanding or the gap between what cops know and what normal folk walking around in their lives um, associate with gang affiliation. So the cops have, cops have sort of a, a list of what they say indicates that you're a gang member and other people are saying, well, this is just my neighborhood. I'm just taking a picture with my friend. I'm not like giving a piece... So it's a big deal now. There was somebody else over here in the back, and then I'm coming to you in the front. Yes, yes, sir. And I want a question, not a statement. <laughs> well, I think we got some post hoc ergo propter hoc analysis from Callie Crosley when she said that Brooke 
probably lost because he came out against. De- uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm quoting. I'm, I'm from the book. Yeah. I'm, that's not me. Well, I think you're okay. leaving out some of the uh, Talk to his own personal, <laughs> his own personal marriage, marital difficulties, his personal mess of a life. Do you have a question? Contributed to it, and his opponent. Do you have a question? Was not on the other side. Do you of have the a question? This business of the. All right, we're done here. If you don't have a question, Callie. Yeah. Do you have a question? Ask a question. We'll get to it. Stop interrupting. This business of police stations embedding themselves in black neighborhoods to monitor and surveil. Do you have a question? If you'd let me finish. No, you're not getting to it, sir. I'm sorry. I got to move on. All right. This lady here in the front. Yeah. Thank you. Um, this is for, uh, is it Lawrence Joseph? I was shocked when you made a Lawrence statement. Ralph. Lawrence Ralph. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Lawrence Ralph. I was shocked when you made a statement that one of the high school or the school dropouts said that um, he was afraid to go to school because he was afraid it would be a violation of his probation. Why would that be a violation? Uh, well, because there's often police officers at school, um, so. And probation officers go to schools. And so uh, in, in the context of Chicago, um, a lot of times you have off-duty cops who are employed by high schools to, like, it, there's no hall monitors. They make sure people go to class on time. They kind of make sure people aren't loitering around the high school. Sometimes they're even employed to counsel school, to counsel children on like their education, uh, even though they're not qualified to do this. So you're, you can go to school and confront a police officer who knows that uh, you're, you violated your probation or you're on parole or they know uh, the kind of criminal history. And sometimes you can get, you know, for talking back to a teacher or something like that, that can be criminalized. So you could uh, have to go to the probation officer down the hall. Uh, so there's all sorts of ways that the criminal justice system is embedded in the high school. Is that just in Chicago or is that? No, it's all over the country. Really? Very prevalent. Greetings from the margin of the wall here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm curious what sort of policies and programs we can implement in Boston. So you referenced again, and I think we're all stuck on this 70% dropout rate from high school. You said that there were, uh, there's an absence of resources. What sort of resources could we possibly implement in Boston that could help alleviate uh, the educational dropout? Yeah. Um, well, it's hard for me because I'm actually on Chicago, but <laughs> I think, I mean, I think what happens in Chicago that leads to something like an escalating dropout rate is these phenomenon of school closures. And and so what has happened is a lot of schools have been closed and, uh, you know, sometimes charter schools are in their place. Sometimes uh, they don't get reopened. And so you have a phenomenon where uh, a lot of people are funneled to particular schools. And this, again, has a a real impact on uh, gang affiliation and gang boundaries when it when it comes to how people navigate their neighborhoods. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's tied to the, the big problem of school closures and reopenings in Chicago. But I'm not sure if there's a parallel here with that. 
Hello, thank you for uh, the event today. I'm really enjoying it. Um, I have a question that's very specific to Boston. I am not from Boston. I grew up in Virginia. So I find Boston a very fascinating place to be in racially. And uh, my question is about this idea of the Northern mystique and how it's affecting how the Black Lives Matter movement is working in Boston, if at all. I don't get a sense of it locally here. It feels very removed from Boston. And I wonder how much of that is to do with the mystique, that Northern mystique you were talking about earlier. Um, there is a Black Lives Matter movement okay. here. Just want to be clear. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, it's a difficult question because in the 1970s, Boston certainly had the reputation as the face of Northern racism. Um, I'm not sure that it has that quite as much anymore. Um, I, I think it, uh, I'm talking about reputation at a sort of national level. I'm not talking about whether the segregation or racism is any better or worse nowadays. But I think, um, you know, Mayor Menino tried to improve the racial reputation very much. And, and I think he succeeded on, on that level, on the sort of rhetorical level. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, the, the other thing is that... Um, to my knowledge, there haven't been egregious inc- as egregious incidents in Boston as elsewhere. Now, that could just be a matter of time. And if there is an egregious incident, perhaps the Black Lives Matter, you could see them come with, with fuller force. I'm not really sure. Do you? I, I would say the reputation persists, <laughs> just to be clear. That's the first question anybody asks me if they know where I'm from. Right. And that busing thing is, I don't care, it was in the 70s. That's the first thing that any person of color thinking of coming to Boston asked the question yeah. about. So that's the reputation remains. Uh, the question is for um, Jason, that I'm from Boston, born in Boston, born in Roxbury. And I'd like to for you to address the current status of how the races are dealing with each other in Boston now, because it seems like you're talking from historic, historical context of back in the 70s and maybe the 60s and 70s and coming back from World War II and all that kind of stuff. How about right now? And, and, I'm, and Kelly, I don't want to make a statement. Can I just make, say one thing? And it's just an observation. Uh-huh. And, and the, the Quickly. Ob- yes. The observation only is that if you go downtown, if, you, if you're right around Copley Square, not so much today, but any other day, you don't see a lot of black people. Right. So okay. I'd just like for you to um, address how it is currently in and the be- city. And before he answers that, let me just remind you that you can get your book signed and purchased. You want to know why they called him Urkel in the gang territory? <laughs> and you want to know what ghosts continue to haunt Crown Heights much later after a big incident. So that's all I'm going to do. That's a tease. Now you can answer the question. <laughs> um, well, I think it's, it's clear that Boston is still a deeply segregated city. Um, I think you can you can tell that by the statistics that bear it out in regard to every other city, or you can tell that by feeling, like you're saying, walking around Boston. Um, beyond that, I, I hope I'm humble enough to admit that those of you who live in the city can answer the question better than I can in the end. And as you say, I am a historian. Um, I, I did try to bring my story up to the present, but... 
That's the best answer I can give, that Boston is deeply segregated, and I'll defer to you guys beyond that. <laughs> All right. Thank our guests. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> this podcast was produced by The Drum, a literary magazine for your ears.